the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all here. Wow, what an amazing length of days we've been having. Friday was Juneteenth. Yesterday was the summer solstice. Today's Father's Day. And every day, it seems, is Global COVID Day and International Dismantle Racism Day. On this Father's Day, I wish I could ask my own father what he thought of everything that's happening now. But he's 95 years old and Alzheimer's has robbed him of the gift of speech. I'm really grieving that right now because selfishly, in these difficult times, I could use some of his wisdom. If you were to look into my father's eyes, you could still catch a glimpse of the brilliant Renaissance man that he once was. A doctor and a scientist, a sculptor and a musician, a potter and an actor who was known to reel out Shakespearean soliloquies at the drop of a hat. My, he and my mom were also very involved in the civil rights movement. In 1964, my parents, in a prophetic moment that changed my life for the better, they walked out of their all-white Episcopal church in Minneapolis and joined the historical, historically black Episcopal church on the north side of town. There we were warmly welcomed. It was a beautiful experience. I grew up holding hands with ancient black ladies, singing, We Shall Overcome, and riding on my dad's shoulders as we marched in demonstrations and worrying about my dad when he flew south to march behind Dr. King. When Dr. King was assassinated, my parents loaded all five of us kids into the VW bus and we drove down to Atlanta to join the five-mile funeral march from Ebenezer Baptist Church to the cemetery. Dr. King's casket had been loaded onto a simple cart pulled by a pair of mules. The sight of those thousands of people walking behind those two mules is one of my most precious memories. If my father could speak, I imagine he'd have a thing or two to say about what's happening now. I imagine his truth burning inside him like the prophet Jeremiah's from whom we hear this morning. Jeremiah famously spoke his truth because he could do nothing other. He spoke his truth despite beatings and assassination attempts and imprisonments and pillories and ultimately exile. He was a prophet with the unfortunate fate of witnessing the catastrophes that he had predicted a bitter satisfaction because he never could see any good coming from his life's work. Jeremiah said, the truth of God's word was like a burning fire shut up in his bones. Like any human being who just wants to live a quiet life, he tried to stay silent. He truly did not enjoy the pillory and the threats and the beatings. In fact, he really rather resented God for putting him into that position in the first place. 
He complained bitterly about it to God, but God's word was a flaming sword of truth and he could not remain silent. The Lord is with me like a dread warrior, he said. I wonder what Jeremiah would say to us about our current situation. So many fathers and mothers silenced by time that I wish I could talk to right now. What would Dr. King be saying right now? If he were alive today, he would be 91 years old. Would we even be listening to him? Are we listening to him now? What about Jesus? What would Jesus have to say to us? In this morning's gospel, he says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. Well, that's what speaking the truth does sometimes, doesn't it? It divides us. Those of us who grew up in the 60s with the civil rights campaigns and the Vietnam War and the women's movement, we know all about this sort of truth that divides families and congregations and entire nations. We know all too well the heartbreak that comes when our truth divides us. We know all about children being disowned and churches splitting in two and pastors being run out on a rail for the sin of speaking their truth. I wonder what Jesus would say to us today. For the first 20 years of my career in four different congregations, the big question that threatened to divide us was, of course, the issue of homosexuality. I was a teenager when my brother came out of the closet, and right then I made a promise never to turn my back on the LGBTQ community. So as a priest, I did everything I could think of to help my congregations understand gay rights. I organized teach-ins and trainings. I led book studies. I preached. I scolded. I spent countless hours on phones and at kitchen tables, listening and talking and listening some more. And in the end, of course, it wasn't the preaching and the Bible studies and the book groups that won the day. In the end, it was my parishioners' own gay children that won the day. It was their gay colleagues and their lesbian neighbors and their transgendered friends at the coffee hour daring to come out of the closet and speak their truth. When LGBTQ folks started looking their loved ones in the eye and speaking their truth, fully aware that doing so would mean losing their jobs, their reputations, even their families, that's when hearts and minds were changed. It's the power of love harnessed to the cause of justice that wins the day. And not without a cost. This is a costly love we're talking about, a love that leads to the cross. The saying in Matthew's gospel about how Jesus came not to bring peace but the sword appears in two other places in Luke 
and in the Gospel of Thomas. And in all three places, the saying is paired with this statement about the cross. Those who do not take up their cross and follow after me are not worthy of me. Well, my LGBTQ friends know all about that cross. Historians tell us that in Galilee, where Jesus grew up, there were many days when the roads were lined with hundreds of men hanging on crosses. And you know what? That hasn't changed. It's just that these days, most of those crosses are invisible. But to the hundreds and thousands of black men languishing in prisons for petty crimes, the cross is real. To the millions of black folks living in poverty and the legacy of slavery, that cross is real. To the thousands of transgendered men and women routinely harassed and beaten, that cross is real. So I think this is what Jesus is saying to us now. He's saying, yes, the truth divides. Yes, the truth still cuts like a sword. It always has and it always will. And as long as we have air to breathe, our truth will be heard. As long as young black men are shot in the back, our truth will be heard. As long as millions of lives are wasted by a corrupt prison industry, our truth will be heard. We will shout it from the rooftops. We will sing it in the streets. And when the batons come out and the tear gas starts flying, we will not be silenced. We will not be silenced in the face of murder. We will not be silenced in the face of lies. We will not be silenced in the face of open threats to the U.S. Constitution. But I think Jesus would also say this, this truth-telling business, it's a spiritual discipline. Because whenever our truth is answered by a cross, we have a choice to make. We can start erecting our own crosses and nailing our enemies to them. We can start trading an eye for an eye until the whole world is blind, as Gandhi said. But when we do that, we fail to employ the greatest weapon in our arsenal, which is love. This week, I discovered a wonderful woman named Angel Kyoto Williams. She happens to be the second black woman to receive transmission as a Zen Buddhist teacher. She runs a place down in Berkeley that helps social justice activists find their spiritual ground. In an interview with Krista Tippett three years ago, she said that without a willingness to be flexible, open and soft-bellied so that we can be moved by the truth of the other, we're not being transformative. For us to transform society, she said, we have to allow ourselves to be transformed as individuals. And for us to be transformed as individuals, we have to allow for the incompleteness of any of our truths and for a real forgiveness for the complexity of human beings. 
She says we have to carry a forgiveness for what we're all trapped inside of so that we're able to respond to the oppression, but we're able to do that with a deep and abiding sense that there are people, human beings at the other end of that baton, that stick, that policy, that are also trapped in something. They're also trapped in a suffering. You know, it's so easy to get self-righteous. It's so easy to start swinging our swords of truth around willy-nilly, lopping off heads like we're in some kind of Jedi battle against stormtroopers. But how much more difficult and how much more transformative it is to see the suffering of those who have to suppress their humanity when they follow orders, who live with the moral injuries of clubbing nonviolent protesters, who carry the trauma of violence into their homes each night, who can't sleep for all the adrenaline coursing through them, and who can't stop drinking for all the grief they're suppressing. For many of us, this is when the cross of love appears. When we allow our own self-righteous certainties, our own distancing pronouncements, our own easy ridicule and judgments to die, even as we fearlessly speak our truth with love, the cross of love appears then. To use Paul's language from this morning, when we submit to the cross, our old self of separation and hatred, that old self that thinks we're fundamentally different from our oppressors, that old self that wants us to brandish our particular brand of suffering as if that makes us better than the next person, that old self that would deny the humanity of those who would deny ours, that old self goes on the cross of God's love. That old self has to die. So yes, Jesus tells us, pick up your cross, but get it straight in your mind just what this cross is. It is not a cross of appeasement. It is not a cross of silence. It is not a cross of compromise. It is far harder than that. It is a cross of inner transformation. It is the cross of death and rebirth. It is the cross of our very salvation. Amen.